I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds. I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. You accept? I accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast brought to you by three history and geography nerds and an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly and I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong and joining me are... Joe Byrne and I'm broadcasting from Bern, Switzerland. Mark Boyle from uh, Surrey in the UK. And today we'll be talking about the Isle of Man, a tiny island in the Irish Sea that lies right between Britain and Ireland. From its highest point, Sinead Fell at 620 metres, uh, it said you can see six kingdoms, England, Ireland, Wales, Scotland, the Isle of Man itself, and Heaven. It's known for its rugged landscape, motorsports, and a very curious flag. Today the island is a British crown dependency, although it has never been a part of the United Kingdom. Its 85,000 inhabitants, 28,000 of whom live in the capital Douglas on the east coast, are spread over the island's 572 square kilometres. The Isle of Man's fascinating history is made for a unique po- pocket of culture within the British Isles, a place that has never truly been overcome by the power surrounding it and has always stood alone. I believe the beginning of the island, Isle of Man is shrouded in legend, is that right Joe? The first thing I ever heard about the Isle of Man at school in Ireland was its um, similarity in shape to a lake in Northern Ireland called Loch Ney. Uh, and we were told this legend, uh, probably in history class, because, you know, um, the best history is legendary, that the giant Finn McCool, who who is a, a warrior hero in Irish mythology and also a feature of Scottish and, and Manx mythology, he's meant to have... You know, picked a fight with a Scottish giant and who came across the giant's causeway in, in Northern Ireland. Um, and as the Scottish giant was running away, Finn McCool picked up a chunk of the earth with his hand to throw at the fleeing giant and missed and it landed in the Irish Sea and became the Isle of Man. So um, this is where, where I always thought the Isle of Man came from. And then, you know, I, I learned about geography and geology at school and things changed i think that may not be an accurate account of what happened is what i'm saying balderdash heresy (laughs) do we have any more concrete uh information mark do you think about the where the island actually came from oh oh luke i've got some sweet sweet boring dates for you so uh (laughs) the the isle of man was separated from the rest of the british isles about eight 1500 BC, so maybe about 10,000 years ago. Uh, The first evidence of human settlement comes maybe 2,000 years after that, so uh, potentially 8,000 years of of human habitation on the island. Uh, The oldest uh, ruin, uh, I'm not sure if that's the right word for something, something as old as this. We're going back to the Stone Age, right? Yeah, it's it's from 3,500 BC. Uh, so over 5,000 years old. Uh, and it's known as Male Hill or Mull Hill. And like everything else that goes back that far, it's uh, it's largely gravesite based. So there's uh, six 
uh, cupless grave sites, uh, two, two graves facing each other, arranged in a circle. So it's, it has that kind of a, a Stonehenge, uh, you know, pagan, ancient feel to it. But if you were to, to see it, it, it you know, it, it is really beautiful and striking. It's just, you know, very much death-based. It's quite, uh, it, it's quite, uh, quite stark. Like there's these shards of hewn stone sticking out of the earth. Almost like uh, like blades. It's extraordinarily dramatic, and um, if I'm honest, loses a little bit in the in the audio medium. Um, <laughs> probably the the main uh, the main site that if you go looking for ancient Isle of Man archaeology is at uh, Cashdall in Ard, uh, which probably sounds very familiar to you, Joe. I know you're you're uh, yes, yeah, so, so, uh, enthusiastic Gaelic. As, as an Irish uh, speaker, food. that to me sounds like the, the the castle on a height or something to that effect. Exactly that. Okay. Exactly that. Um, which a little bit shows the kind of connection between um, Manx culture and, and Irish culture, the fact that you can you can recognize that so easily. So Castle Anard is from about two thousand years ago. Sorry, no uh, four thousand years ago, two thousand BC. Um, it's on a raised plateau and it has great views of the mountains and also looking down to the sea and also has a, a many chambered graves. And there was a there was another discovery around that time, Mark, in, in Ronald's way of uh, various axes and pottery and stuff. And they reckoned that these axes were unique to different to anything seen in Britain and Ireland. So the theory those archaeologists had was that the Alamam is developing its own distinct culture and, and tool making skills and wasn't just copying from its neighbours so it, it's reasonable to assume at this point these guys were doing their own thing yeah and and I think that that discovery is a really uh, really a standout one because I, I went to the actual um, the actual report that the guy filed who, who excavated Castell and Art and the only two significant discoveries in terms of items were 125 beach-worn quartz pebbles um, and I quote a small featureless bronze bar <laughs> so finding items from that long ago is extraordinarily uh, extraordinarily lucky and, and, and difficult uh, so to find something like that at the Ronald's Way axes is, is very significant um, moving on a little bit to some other sites they start to show how the Isle of Man was, I guess, uh, uh, integrated into the countries around it and was kind of subject to the to the shifting powers from uh, Stone Age to uh, Bronze Age and then the Iron Age Celts. Um, the Celts in particular viewed the Isle of Man with a, a certain degree of, I guess, uh, uh, mysticism. Uh, it, it was always uh, visible from, from Ireland, visible from, from Wales and Scotland. So it always had an element of... Uh, uh, alienness, I guess, to to uh, people living domestically in those places, and uh, it became very much identified with uh, a, a legendary character called Mananon MacLear. And often, it's it's uh, it, the name of the island now, Isle of Man, is attributed to Mananon MacLear, but also vice versa. People are not sure whether it just means you know the man from man or whether it was named after him directly but he he occupies a similar role in celtic mythology as uh perhaps uh loki uh, as in the the lord of mischief but also of uh, uh karen the boatman the sort of uh the 
the accompaniment to death, the person who brings you across to the other world. And, and also, more generally, the god of the sea. Yes, yes, that as well, that as well. Um, he also, apparently, had a boat called Skubtuene, which translates to wave sweeper, a sword called Fragorok, <laughs> not Fragorok, Fragorok. The answerer. The answerer. Nice. Right. Yeah. Dare you pose the question? <laughs> uh, and his horse was called Enbar. Um, so the Celts had a, they had very much, I guess, the Isle of Man integrated into their perception of the world. Um, and this is shown very well by a, a site called uh, Baladul, uh, which interestingly was excavated by an interned German. Uh, in 1945. Oh, we'll get to that later. We will, yeah. Absolutely. Come, come back to that later. It was an accidental discovery. They thought it was, uh, they were looking at something that was quite Iron Age, but uh, it was actually a, a Viking gravesite upon a Celtic Christian gravesite. And what they what they surmise is that the, the local Vikings did this on purpose to show the permanence of their their residence on the Isle of Man. They were trying to show the Celts that they were uh, uh, almost kind of pushing their culture to the side. Superseding. They were the dominant power, yeah. Exactly. They, they placed a Viking longship on it and placed uh, the body of a chieftain within it, burned the whole thing, uh, including a, a, a woman that was actually laid beside him, and they suggest it might have been a, a human sacrifice. Um, so there, there's a lot of these kinds of sites and, and, and archaeological finds across it, including uh, also um, uh, Oum stones. There was one found from 400 AD that literally just had a, a little snippet, a, like a tantalizing snapshot of whatever they were trying to record, and it just says, a group of 50 men. And there's no way to know whether it was a, <laughs> a church or whether it was a massacre or a battle. It's That's just, the worst graffiti ever. <laughs> it was just 50 guys and we assume some stuff happened to <laughs> or by them. <laughs> and like, Oum takes a long time to carve. Like these are, these are notches in the corner of a, of a, a pillar, right? Yes, Not Like yes, you see exactly. in Ireland or Scotland. Yeah, exactly. Um, also... Similarly, in this this kind of mix of of stone based historical artifacts, there's uh, seem seem to have been a, a tradition of mixing Celtic oum with uh, Norse runes, uh, sorry runes or u n e s. Uh, so there's something like uh, twenty six uh, Norse oum rune stones spread across all of the Isle of Man, which is very significant because. Norway, where many of the Vikings came from, only has thirty-three. So it's uh, wow. yeah, it's uh, it's it's replete with these uh, these stone artifacts pointing to the mixed history of Celts and Vikings and, and Christians, all all vying for dominance uh, in this tiny, tiny territory. Well, it is it is a very strategic location, I guess. You could, I mean, if you're looking at a map of the British Isles, it's basically smack bang right in the middle of the British Isles. Like it's not a huge place itself, but in terms of, as we said in the intro, like being in the middle of everything, you can't really get any closer to the middle of the British Isles, I guess. And and more importantly, Luke, if, if you're traveling by sea, which is something I think we always forget when looking at maps, uh, you're coming from Norway, you want to go to Ireland or England or Wales, this place is on the way everywhere. So controlling it is important. And that's what they did. It becomes clear in and around seven and eight hundreds. 
that Vikings from Norway start making their way into this region. And the history is messy because the people who wrote history were the the Christian monks in in the Scottish islands like Iona. Um, And they fled after repeated raids by Vikings, stealing all their precious chalices and stuff. So um, the history gets pretty sketchy. The, the historian Okuran has a quote here. He says, When and how the Vikings conquered and occupied the Isles is unknown and perhaps unknowable, because the sources just don't exist until later, when we get Icelandic sagas telling stories about these people, and we get chronicles written by monks at later dates telling us about these people. But we definitely know that between between the, the point when these homestones are being put up by Celts, and around the turn of the millennium, the the Isle of Man changed from being a, a Gaelic Celtic kingdom to a Norse slash Gaelic kingdom, with probably still Gaelic people, but definitely Norse rulers. And how did that sort of impact then the, the sort of how the island developed at that time, Joe? One of the most significant developments is this is the era when the Tinwald was founded. This is the claim by the uh, by the Manx people to be the oldest continuously sitting parliament in the world. So it was allegedly founded in 979 AD. Uh, it's hard to say if that's true. The earliest written sources come from a couple of centuries later, but definitely there appears to have been a Viking parliament meeting in, in the Isle of Man from the Viking era onwards. And th- th- Tinwald is a very similar word to uh, Thingvalir in Iceland and the Althing, uh, in various other Scandinavian traditions. So this is a, a kind of parliamentary assembly that goes all the way back to that era. We start to see Manx characters appearing in Irish history um, in and around the turn of the millennium. So in t- 1014, the Battle of Clontarf was a very important battle in this region where um, it was described retrospectively as a battle between the Gaelic, Irish and the Viking invaders. But Gaels and Vikings fought on both sides. And this is when the, the great king, Brian Boru, uh, defeated the Viking king of Dublin. And he was killed by a man called Brother of Man, who was a, a Manx uh, Viking warrior. And on his side, Brother's brother, um, <laughs> Ospacker, fought with the, the Irish. So it just shows how mixed up these were. It wasn't, these weren't um, national battles. They were just one family wanted to control a region and they would build alliances with whoever else would support them through marriage or through battle. So um, this is when Manx characters start appearing in, in the histories. And then really the first major ruler um, of the, the, uh, the kingdom of Man and the Isles, because the Isle of Man's kingdom tended to include the Scottish islands of the Hebrides and Islay and, and various other western Scottish islands. Uh, it was a guy called um, Godred Crovan. So he's a really important character because his descendants ruled the island for a couple of hundred years. And where did he come from, Joe? He is a bit of a mysterious character. Um, they're not really sure where he came from, but he seems to have had strong connections to Dublin. And he was briefly king of Dublin. So um, an interesting thing to notice that the the Isle of Man was in the Diocese of Dublin. So the there's a parish church in in central Dublin that, that has the baptismal records that people baptise on the Isle of Man because that was the local church, uh, which to us today is absurd. 
Like uh, we we all lived in Dublin at some point, and it it doesn't seem like the Isle of Man would be in in your anywhere parish, near us. It's um, yeah, but it has the 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 flag, the three legged Triskel flag of the Isle of Man, uh, on the the roof of that church. Um, so that that's kind of interesting. Do you want to tell us the history of that flag, Joe? Uh, the flag seems to have been a symbol, like the Triskel symbol, kind of a three armed symbol. Is a, a standard Celtic symbol everywhere. You see it in Sicily and in Ireland and Brittany. But the putting of the feet on it is is a very Manx thing, and um, it seems to be related to the, the, the Manx motto of uh, "Whithersoever you throw me, I, there I will stand." So, like, there it's a symbol of their resilience as an island, I think, and their ability to which is fitting stand I think. up to anything. Yeah, it's fitting. Is, is there? Is there also a possibility that there's something of a male sexual boast in there also? Uh, sort of you you might say that, angle? but I, I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, it, it could be, <laughs> yep. Anyway, Croven, he, he founded a dynasty that, as I say, ruled for the next couple of hundred years. Um, he, he had also been involved in 1066, not in the Battle of Hastings, but in a battle in, in northern England where the English king had driven off a Norwegian invasion. So um, this was a messy time. Norway, Scotland, England, Wales, Ireland, all trying to kill each other. And he was succeeded by his, his sons, who all killed each other in various different ways. Um, and his son, Harold, the second son, when he tried to assert his right to take over from his father, he was blinded and castrated by his brother. Ooh. Fun. Ooh. <laughs> Not killed, which would seem reasonably like par for the course, but he blinded him and castrated him. Was there was there an order to that? Was it? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, yeah, let's just ponder that for. I, I feel like maybe the blinding would make it would make the castration slightly more bearable. So you wouldn't have to look it's, at it, you know. I guess. Yeah, yeah. There, there'd be slightly less trepidation, yeah. maybe. Although. Anyway, this this seems to have been a thing, as we'll, we'll see in a minute. Um. So there was, it was a mess, and these two brothers fell out, and their people fought each other. And his mother's not cleaning it up. Not this time, boys. <laughs> and then the King Magnus of Norway got involved, and he ruled the island for a bit. And then... The King Agnes. Magnus. Magnus. Yeah. Right, no, not, sure. not Agnes. Um, <laughs> who's your, your great aunt or something. Sure. Um, and then eventually, Croven's third son, Olaf... There's going to be a lot of Olafs from here on. He was supported by the English king, and he was brought in to take over the country. And um, his big contribution to the islands was he appointed the first bishop who, who, who ruled over the, the, the kingdom of the isles. And this guy, uh, Wymond, was um, quite a character. He's kind of a, what would you call him? Like a seafaring warlord pirate bishop? Ooh, ooh that's sexy. That's really um, sexy. He, he he wasn't very bishopy. He sounds like a bad dude to me. <laughs> yeah, he, he wasn't. He wasn't great. Now apparently, bishops going to war with each other was normal in this era, which tells you more about about the eleven hundreds than. I, I just I just like how Luke was kind of mirroring a parishioner, <laughs> like look at this new bishop in. He's like a you know seafaring murder man with a boat full of uh, skulls and corpses. Well, he sounds like a bad dude to me. That's all I know. Uh, anyway. uh, well, you'll be glad to hear that Bishop Wymond met his end in an ignominious way uh, in, in a fight with the, the Bishop of, um, of Whithorn. And he was 
Well, uh, will I let you guess what was done to him? Um, his 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 brother castrated him. Uh, castrated first and then blinded. <laughs> no, no, bl- bl- blinded and then castrated. Luke, right. Obviously, right. if, you, if you're gonna if you're gonna finish off a bishop, you know it's very important to make sure the bishop doesn't have children. I I, I don't I don't really follow this one. So um, at this point, a, a character called called, called Summerled enters the story. He was a, a king of um, a, of Argyll and a Scottish island. Not the king; he was he was a lord, and he married the daughter of Olaf. And his descendants, Clan Sorla, became trouble for the Croven dynasty for the rest of the next couple of hundred years. Uh, they split the kingdom with Clan Sorla ruling the north and the Croven dynasty ruling the island of Man itself. And there was lots of back and forth and battles and Irish kings getting involved on one side, Scottish kings on another. And going into it in too much detail would just hurt your head because everyone is called Olaf and Godred. Everyone. And none of them are the snowman from Frozen. None of them are the snowman from Frozen, no. And Olaf and Godred are the easiest to pronounce versions of their names. Joe, just just a question. Yeah. Um, just because you, you, you were looking at this this period of history a lot, lot more than us. Mm. And there's a lot, a lot of back and forth. And it's just a thought that I had earlier on when looking at kind of how the, the Vikings were using uh, the Isle of Man just almost as like a political slash PR kind of thing uh, that despite the suggested strategic importance of the Isle of Man, you know, given mm-hmm. its position, that it's really just more of a sort of a, a statement of intent that if you're going from, you know, Ireland to, to Great Britain to do some conquering or vice versa, you kind of can't pass up the opportunity to do a little bit of mini conquering. You'd be kind of, sure, you'd, yeah. you'd be kicking yourself later kind of thing. And then that way, it's really just a way to threaten the other person, to encroach onto their side of the Irish Sea a little bit more. Is, and be is in that, a good position that... to control that. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And it's also important to remember in this era, kingdoms weren't monolithic. Mm. So the King of Man was usually subservient to the King of Norway, but he was still a king. Okay. And like Ireland was full of thousands of kings, you know, the king of Dublin and the king of Munster and the king of Leinster. And then there was a high king of Ireland. But the idea of there being one true king wasn't really the political philosophy of the time. So right. the individual families had a stake in remaining king of, a, of their particular plot of land, no matter how small it was. Um, so we get to a point where the English start in, invading Ireland um, a guy called Strongbow helped Dermot McMurrah become High King of Ireland. And initially, the, the Croven dynasty opposed this because they didn't want more Norse English influence on their western flank. And then they saw the way the wind was blowing. They brought their ships back from Dublin and they decided that the English were the good guys and they were on their side, uh, which, you know, was pragmatic, to say the least. The king in 1229, Olaf the Black, which is, you know, that's what you want to be called as a king. That's a great name. It is a good name. Top name. Top so name. he killed his illegitimate brother in order to become king with the help of... Uh, did he of, castrate him? He did. I, I, just, I haven't found any record of him castrating him. I think he just he just killed him straight up. He was a, well, he was a, he was a, he was a nicer guy. I think it would be disappointing to think that he wasn't castrated. So let's all just imagine that he was. And blinded, of course. Okay, okay. And Olaf is the origin of the sword of state, at least according to myth. So there's a big sword that they use at meetings of, of Timwald now when they make laws that allegedly comes from Olaf in the 1200s. Probably doesn't, almost certainly doesn't. But the legend is that he brought it back from Santiago after going there on pilgrimage because he felt bad about something. 
<laughs> he, felt, his, he felt a bit fat, so he did that instead. <laughs> his three sons were all kings, and they declined in, in prestige. And then his third son, Magnus, was the last um, Croven king of an independent Isle of Man. The king of Norway gave up in 1266 and signed the Treaty of Perth, which gave, uh, which gave Scotland control of the Isle of Man. Uh, and that was kind of the end of it as an independent kingdom. That there was one last kick of the beast when Magnus' Magnus's bastard son... Uh, also called Godred? Yeah, he was called Godred too. Everyone was called Godred. Uh, he led an uprising which the Scots crushed. And so he was the last Norse king of man. And then it was between Scotland and England to figure out who would run this lucrative little spot on the earth. I actually, uh, I was reading around this as well, and I saw Robert de Bruce took over the Isle of Man for about 20 months. And that around this time, the people of the Isle of Man apparently weren't always sure who they were meant to be swearing fealty to. They kind of used to lose track of it a little bit because people would just kind of fight around them and they just kind of keep, you know, boiling stones for soup. (laughs) All right, there we're going to take a quick break. A musical interlude from uh, three famous sons of the Isle of Man. Let's see if you can guess who they are. When the summer day is over It's busy So for uh, the three people out there who don't realise who that was, that was the Bee Gees, uh, who, little known fact, were born on the Isle of Man. So we left off... That, that, that is a surprise. It is, it is. Uh, so we left off, Scotland and England are fighting over the Isle of Man, this very strategic location in the Irish Sea. Uh, England gains the upper hand for a while, and in 1333, uh, King Edward III of England renounces his claim to the Isle of Man uh, and gives it to his friend... Uh, William de Montacute, which is another fantastic name, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, the island is then attacked uh, a few years later, a couple of uh, decades later, by a Scottish knight, Sir William Douglas of Nithsdale. Also a good name. Also a good name. He had uh, just had a, a showdown with uh, the people of Carlingford in Ireland, uh, who would, he had besieged and ended up ransacking the town. And I guess he was not very happy uh, with how things had turned out there. Not, not enough booty. So on his way back, so on his way back to Scotland, he decides to uh, ravage the Isle of Man, uh, burning and pillaging, I believe, and just just for kicks, as far as I can tell. Uh, maybe to pick up some more. So we're booty. saying, is, is is the Vikings set up a civilization there, and the Scots ravaged it? Yes, that Ooh. seems backwards to me. Um, it, it the Vikings have got the bad rap. Yeah. <laughs> Well, as far as I could tell from my research, this guy was just a, a knight who was trying to make a name for himself. Uh, as as yeah, what? A, like, a, a name as a bad boy? Like. I suppose so, yeah. I mean, as much as I could tell about him, yeah. Um, so, uh, in 1392, William de Montague's son sold the island then uh, and its sovereignty to another a 
guy with another fantastic name, uh, Sir William Lescrope. 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 Uh, that guy sounds like a bad dude to me. He William does. Lescrope. And also, why is everyone called William? Uh, oh, like, yeah, I, there was a lot of We Williams. got rid of the Olaf, so now everyone's called William. Probably William the oh, Conqueror. because the English took over. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Coming here with their names. Yeah. And what did Lescrope do? Lescrope is allied with uh, King Richard II of England, uh, who's inherited the throne of England in the meantime. This is around the 1390s. Oh, this, this, this is going to go well. Yep. Uh, and Richard II, uh, as some students of history will know, uh, was overthrown uh, in an English civil war. Uh, the new king, Henry, then decided to behead Lescrope, and the island then passes under the jurisdiction of the English crown. So, oh, so, this, so that, that's the point that happens at? Yes. Because I suppose listeners are probably, we, we possibly should have flagged it earlier, but the head of state of the Isle of Man today is, is the British monarch. Hello, Elizabeth. So, the Queen, 90 uh, years old. Uh, as we, as, as we record, she's, she's, she's just gotten very old. Very old. She uh, has gotten very old. Well, it's been a gradual um, process. <laughs> so this is when that happened. <laughs> Surprise news! So, the Queen is 90! When did that happen? Anyway, come on. <laughs> She's been aging at a rate of uh, one day per day <laughs> for 90 years. Um, so, King Henry, then the new King of England, uh, grants the island to Sir John Stanley. And this is an important point uh, in the history of the island because the Stanleys would um, take take control of the island and would lead the island... Uh, for a further 13, uh, I don't know if it's 13 generations, but I know 13 different members of the Stanley family would come to rule the island in time. That, that's pretty uh, good. That's, those are yeah. long innings for, like, a couple of dynasties were wiped out during that period. So. Yep. The island passes under control of, the, of this guy, uh, Sir John Stanley. And the cost of um, the island is a to swear fealty and homage to the King of England and also to gift each new ruler of uh, Britain a two falcons uh, as a coronation gift. So every time there's a new King of England, this uh, Stanley family has to gift them two new falcons to uh, pay I with. demand two falcons you never paid. That, that seems like a good deal. Are falcons rare? Or in the Isle of Man? I'm not sure, like... actually. I didn't... Uh... That's, a, that's a pretty sweet deal. I, I'd take that. Yeah, yeah. For, you know, decent-sized island in a very strategic location, you know. And to be, just be left alone? Yep. You know? so, uh, it was, I think it was during his rule that the first known midsummer court was called. So, like, the Tinwald now meet every midsummer to announce the laws to the people. And I think it was during uh, John Sandy's reign in, in 1417 that that happened. Yep. Um and a, a fun fact is that this is done on the 5th of July every year, which you might notice isn't Midsummer's Day. It is not. Midsummer's Day is, a, is the 21st of, of June, right? So why is that? Do you know? It's to do with the change of the calendar from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, which happened much later. So um, it's the reason why Eastern Orthodox Christians celebrate Christmas in January and not in December, like, like Western Christians. It's um, a, a change that happened in Western Europe to update the date of Easter. It was very, very complicated. But it, it resulted in a couple of days getting lost. And when the Isle of Man agreed to take on the new calendar, they said, but we're keeping 
We're keeping our Tinwall Day on the day it used to be on. The 5th of July. Even though that's not the day it is anymore. Very forward it's looking. it's Midsummer's Day, even though it's the 5th of July. So, so is it now uh, called Tinwall Day? Tinwall Day, yeah. And right. the, the rulers get up on a big mountain in St. John's and they read out... Not a mountain, a, kind of a, a raised mound in St. John's and read out the laws to the people in uh, English and in Manx. And then they're deemed to be the law. I, I feel I feel it's my duty at this point to just just point out to those who don't come from the British Isles that there is a bit of a reputation. Uh, and I kind of pointed to it earlier in terms of the, the, the oh, Celtic no. stuff. No, just just to say that the Isle of Man is viewed as being a bit weird, a bit of an odd place yeah. filled with odd yeah. people. Uh, if you can kind of think of uh, the Wicker Man, where they burnt <laughs> that guy. That's that's kind of how, what we all secretly suspect about the Isle of Man. So some, you know, uh, going by arcane calendars, standing on a mound and sending falcons to attack the queen. <laughs> all this stuff kind of plays into why we think they're oh, just a little bit off. You know, just, just there's, there's something going on there. We don't know quite, quite what it is. But um, if, if this sounds weird to you... They like their traditions. Yeah, uh, if this sounds weird to people in other parts of the world, it's because it's a, it's, it is weird. It's, it's, weird. it's weird. Anyway, just, just to put that in there, go, go on, go on. I won't interrupt. All right. So we're going to jump forward a little bit to uh, around the 1640s uh, when the English Civil War begins. And there are... You know, there's a lot of unrest in uh, the British Isles at the time, uh, including on the Isle of Man. Uh, so the Crown sends some reinforcements to the Isle of Man to quell any kind of stirrings of rebellion that there might be there. Uh, so in general, the Isle of Man is sort of kept out of the English Civil War as it rages on. This is Oliver Cromwell's uh, war against the king, yes. right? Yes. So King Charles I is killed uh, at the conclusion of the war in 1649. And Stanley is ordered to surrender the island. But uh, as a loyalist to the king, Stanley decides instead of surrendering the island, he's going to bring some troops to the mainland to fight on in the name of the crown. Stanley is promptly captured and then executed. But but not castrated or blinded. Not castrated or blinded. They've, they've gotten a little bit it's more, more civil civilized time. then. Yeah. You're insatiable, yes. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the Manx militia then, which is a sort of a... I, I suppose, like a civilian um, armed, you know, group uh, decides to lead an uprising on the island and takes takes over the island with the help of some um, parliamentary forces from Britain. Uh, so in 1660, so after maybe 10 more years of uh, this Manx militia sort of ruling the island, Oliver Cromwell decides, uh, I'm going to clamp down on this now. And he uh, puts down the rebels only executes three of them, again, no blinding or castration, and reinstates the Stanley family to governorship of the island. The Stanleys... That was nice of him. It was, it was. I mean, I think I assume it sense, required uh, some saying your father was a traitor kind of stuff, but... Uh, yes, I'm sure yeah. it did, yes. But as I, as I said earlier, I think this uh, Stanley family was quite well regarded on the island, is the impression that I get. Mm. So uh, he probably knew that it would appease them if he put a, you know, if he after putting down this rebellion, put another member member of the same family in charge. The Stanleys then signed the Act of Settlement, 
which is a very important document. It secures uh, farmers and other tenants in their lands and endearing them to the Stanley family further. James Stanley then dies heirless and the island passes to his cousin, uh, James Murray, who is a Duke of Atoll. In 1765, uh, Charlotte Murray, the Duchess of Atoll, who's a sister, I think, of James Murray, uh, sold the rights to the island uh, to the British government, back to the British government again in what's known as a revestment. So at this point, the the, the island doesn't have a lord. No. The so lord is the king now. It then becomes, yes, it then becomes uh, sort of controlled from um, Britain itself, from the mainland, yeah. I guess. Because again, anyone who's not familiar with like feudal systems and medieval times, places kind of had a, a local lord who would then swear fealty to a local duke who would swear fealty to a local whatever, and then all everyone swears fealty to the king. Yeah. What we're getting here is a relationship where the king just owns the island straight out without any intermediate lords. Yep. So this is when this is when the king becomes known as the Lord of Man, which is the title Queen Elizabeth still uses today. Yep. So the the government, uh, the governorship, governorship of the island passes from Lords of Man to Westminster, as you just said. I guess a feature of this this time is that uh, the Stanleys had understood the island and had, had kind of understood the people, but now sort of Parliament in Westminster does not understand the island at all, doesn't understand its, as you mentioned, Mark, the weird cultures and customs that they oh, have. So weird. Uh, and <laughs> Yes. And many people actually regard it as sort of a haven for smugglers and pirates and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm uh, glad that's changed. Begins. People don't think that anymore. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get so, to Around, around this time... Parliament begins a programme of um, just clamping down on that sort of thing, smuggling and uh, general piracy and, and, you know, the sort of things that the Crown was not happy about that were happening on the island, uh, uh, which also heavily sort of impacted the people who were living there uh, and didn't really endear them to the Crown that much. But Can, can I chime in here, Luke? Go for it, go for it. Th- th- there was a report commissioned by, by the Parliament around this time into like what's the story with the Isle of Man and how do we rule this place and um, there's a quote from it I quite like so the report said to maintain the independence of their legislature that's the Tinwald is held to be the first duty of every Manxman they dread therefore and must ever dread the interference in their internal concerns or even a precedent being made for such an interference from any other legislature on earth even the British so, um, it, who would have thunk it? And, kind of and they're a bunch of weirdos. Identify that these they all guys look were weird. Quite, that's, quite uh, independent nice. and didn't really want to be ruled from London. No, but there was a unexpected side effect. So uh, once you know the smuggling and piracy had been uh, clamped down upon, uh, which you know had been had been a feature of the island definitely, then revenues from the from the island and from taxation began to grow, hmm. and part of it began to relax its sort of hard line view of the island um, and sort of relax taxes and um, sort of just generally treat the island a little bit better at that time. That was around uh, the 1850s. And this leads us up to 1866 when the island gets home rule. 1866, yes. This is the point when Parliament decided that home rule would be given to the island and that the the Timwall would be the government, essentially. Um, what does home rule mean? A home rule means that they would have their own local laws and their own local parliament in the form of Timwald rather than 
the laws from the London Parliament being directly applicable. Yeah. And taxes being raised would be raised by their local decisions by local politicians. All right. An interesting thing about the Home Rule, though, Luke, was that they gave women the vote in 1866. How dare they? Straight out. Straight off the bat. Wow. Britain hadn't, didn't have that till the 1930s. That's, that is weird. <clears throat> so they may have a reputation for being backward, uh, Mark, but at least on one topic, we have evidence that this isn't entirely true. I bet there was a weird reason Very for it, though. <laughs> a weird, weird reason. <laughs> Women control the, the supply right, of falcons so... on the island. <laughs> They're working down the falcon mines. they got to keep them sweet. The only the only falconer was uh, a a line of you know maternal I don't know maternal maternal line family. <laughs> wait wait sorry sorry Luke a, a family that only produces women some kind of like Jurassic Park uh, breeding oddity. It's called the Isle of Man. Damn it, the Isle of Man. <laughs> it's called the Isle of Man, exactly. and it harbors a dark secret. Oh, oh lord! Anyway, go on. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, so this parliament developed into a more democratic institution over the years. Uh, initially, it was largely controlled by appointed people, and the lieutenant governor would run the show. And there's been a gradual move over the century and a half since Home Rule towards a, the directly elected House of Keys being the most important bit of the part of the Timwall. Um, and that name, House of Keys, apparently comes from the Gaelic Keiris Fid which means 24. So the house of 24 members, which is how many people sit there. And they don't really do political parties, but they, they have elections and things seem to run smoothly through the 20th century. Okay. All right. So the next major event, I guess, in the history of the island is World War One. And Mark, I, I think you have a little bit of information on this, what what the island was used for during World War One. Yeah. Um, so... There's three things that the Isle of Man is known for in, in the UK, having lived here a little bit. Uh, one is that you know, they're a little, a little bit different. Uh, the other is something we'll get to later on, which is uh, motor racing, uh, but also internment. Uh, during World War One and World War Two, uh, the British government instituted a policy of internment towards civilians from... Uh, enemy nations. So that included uh, Germany, Italy, Japan, depending on, on, on the world war in question. Um, the first round of internment in World War One was uh, strongly intensified after, uh, I think it was 1915, after the Lusitania uh, incident, uh, when the, the, the Germans uh, sunk what was supposed to have been a civilian liner. Uh, evidence subsequently showed that they might have been carrying armaments. But uh, there was a, a, a huge wave of anti-German sentiment. I mean, they were already at war with them, but it, a, a far more uh, visceral hatred uh, w- was was propagated. It was like the Titanic of the day, I guess, Mark, wasn't it? It was sort of... Uh, it was the Titanic was like, if I mean, the iceberg had been German. If, yeah. if the iceberg had been German, <laughs> Exactly, yes. exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a German yeah. iceberg. But... Um, yeah, so there, there was a huge backlash. And on one side, making the argument, well, on one one hand, it's for their own safety, but then very much having a sort of, a, you know, but they're awful people because they're German and the Germans are awful and we should treat them in an awful way. So the, the there was internment camps in other places, but famously so in the Isle of Man. Uh, the main camp held, I think... Uh, 
28,000 people. Dear Lord. Uh, yeah, no. That's it, it, like half the population. Peak, yes. Yeah, it, it, and it was it was only originally constructed for five thousand people, is what I is what I read. Uh, so it must have been a, a fairly cramped. And, and these are just camp, regular folks. These are just like Hans Schmidt from Liverpool, the 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 you know the clockmaker from Liverpool. Just you're German, Hans. Go off to the Isle of Man. That's yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And and the criteria for judging their Germanness seems to have been you know different in different cases. Some people were essentially fully born in, in the UK and had were fully integrated, but because they were seen as German enough or Italian enough or, or what have you, they were they were sent to the Isle of Man. Uh, now most of the records from this from this program, I guess is what you would call it, were I think destroyed possibly in World War II. Uh, That's always reassuring. I'm sure it was all fine. Um, well it it was very Pressing. Uh, it, it seemed it seemed that they they had newsletters and things like that. They created their own their own town, basically their own their own culture uh, there. And there there was a lot of newsletters, but they were largely themed on when do we get to leave the Isle of Man? When do we get to go home? Uh, and they start off. You, you can see some photos of them online. Uh, they start off you know with a lot of color and quite you know uh, here's the local news. Uh, Mary, Mary, John, or you know. Strudel married Fritz or whatever. whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure if Strudel's a woman. woman I think thing, that's but. a dessert. But uh... <laughs> sure. I think it is a dessert. Yes. Strudel. Strudel. Uh, Hilda. Yeah. Let's say Hilda. Hilda and Fritz. But then, as it gradually goes on, you see like the 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 color, uh, and it might be down to rationing, but it, it's also just it kind of it just gets gradually more depressing the longer they were held there, um, yeah. and after internment, generally regardless of whether they had a home and a life in, in, in the UK, they were generally shipped to Germany afterwards. So right. it was a far more permanent thing than just a, like a, a, a temporary restriction of, of their rights. Um, and I think another thing, Mark, to note there is that, um, I don't know whether you're going to mention it or not, but the camp actually didn't close until 1919, which is a full year after yes. the end of World War One. So that was a, a major cause of depression among kind of internees as well so they, they were interned longer than prisoners they're kind of war. going the war is over can we just go home please and they're saying yeah well you'll go home soon I, I think it was like kind of putting it off and putting it I think it, it was off. the Treaty of Versailles the armistice that actually uh, that sealed their ability to, to go back to Germany not right, um, right so I think that was why the wait was there there was a, a novelization by a, a Manx author called Hall Kane, who was apparently very famous at the time. Oh, yeah, but, yeah. But uh, not now. He was uh, the first novelist to sell over a million books. Yeah, he was enormously popular and apparently very well regarded in, in, in terms of, you know, in literary circles as well. He was a contemporary of uh, George Bernard Shaw. Uh, and he, um, he, he wrote a book called The Woman of Nokolo, which was trying to describe the kind of, you know, the... the the hatred and the fruit of hatred, I guess, of, of the war in terms of the Isle of Man, where uh, a local woman falls in love with a, a German interned prisoner and it ends up that the the world just won't let their love alone and they end up throwing themselves off a cliff, I think, in the end. Um, spoiler and they, alert. Yeah, spoiler alert, guys. But it also got turned into a silent movie called Barbed Wire, which uh-huh. obviously shares its name with Pamela Anderson vehicle from the 90s. Uh, don't call me babe, etc. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was Hall Kane's aspiration to try to show the the true negativity because he had actually been a huge 
a proponent of the war. He was a massive supporter of the war. And then as it kind of went on, he got more disillusioned, as everyone did. And then he kind of tried to make up for it by trying to have this parable of uh, uh, patience and tolerance and love conquering all. But, you know... Anyway, it, 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 it was apparently a very bad book. It's, uh, it's not very well written, apparently. Right. And that's partially why Hall Kane's popularity didn't, didn't really stick. Uh, going on to World War II, um, an amazing detail I found. There was a, there's some oral histories taken down by uh, uh, people still living in, in the 2000s who, who went to uh, the Isle of Man for, for internment in, in, in Second World War. Some of the internees in the Second World War knew each other from the first round of internment. Oh. <laughs> it, was, wow. it was only 20 years later. So and round they ended up the Germans again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And poor old, poor old Fritz and, and, and Helda were, got, were forced back onto the bloody boat. A- a- along the along with their kids, William and Olaf. <laughs> and Godred. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> anyway, th- this was a very different kind of thing. It, it, was, it was a lot smaller in scale it wasn't as as as, as much as twenty eight thousand, and it was much uh, shorter in time scale as well it largely went from about 1939 to 1941 and after that fell off massively now something that was interesting about this and i think maybe joe you know a little bit about this as well is that it was known partially as the artist's camp because so many people had fled the nazis uh, who were artists and a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, Jewish Germans as well. So they were interning Jewish Germans in World e- War Two, even Jewish Germans, and actually just oh yeah, just, uh, refugees. Yeah, were, were that, uh, interned. But because a lot because yeah, they weren't technically refugees when they had gone to the UK, they were merely fleeing the Nazis. I think that yeah, was why yeah. that they were able to to do that. But also, just an interesting thing: one of the the uh, famous foods, one of the only famous foods of the Isle of Man, is their kippers. Mm. And they're a, a delicacy, seemingly, and a lot of the uh, the, the national dish is herring and spuds, which is kippers and potatoes. Yeah, and and the herring uh, are known as kippers, and they were lo- n- known locally in the camps as Yom Kippers uh, because <laughs> there's so many so many Jewish people there, wow. uh, named after the Jewish Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Uh, so they're known as Yom Kippers. Um, you can't see people don't have a sense of humor when they're you know imprisoned against their will. No. Uh, also, there was uh, it, it was known for all of these experts from all from all over all over the world, including uh, Japan and uh, and other enemy uh, enemy territories, were freely giving of their time to teach the other internees their languages and their skills. There's a lot of uh, very accomplished people, doctors, writers. There was a lion tamer. Uh, there was uh, also uh, Joseph Pilates of Pilates. The guy who made up this kind of exercise form, he uh, developed his techniques in Nokolo camp. Uh, he worked as a foot- fitness and self-defense trainer uh, and at police schools and for Scotland Yard in the UK. And then internment happened and he was sent off to the Isle of Man. But with all of his free time. That's brilliant. He spent a lot of time uh, uh, developing his, his teachings and his techniques and so on. So, so you're much- saying that, that World War II internment of innocent civilians led to Pilates? Pretty, pretty much. I, I, I think yeah. a lot of people would be happy about that. Um, what that so, says about them as people is a whole other. I, I th- there seem to have been two two groups who were infect- infected by the the second round of internment. Those who kind of saw it as a, uh, I'm I'm doing finger quotes here, a jolly adventure, uh, because it was quite short term. It was for you know maybe 
a year, year and a half. Uh, and the Old Man was a popular tourist destination at the point. At that exactly, point they, were, they were being housed. It in, was. It was a holiday destination for the UK until yeah. being ha- cheap flights to Spain came in. That was where Irish and British tourists went to the beach. They were, they were being housed in, in holiday homes. So there, there was a little bit of, if you saw it in the right way, you could take a positive spin out of it. Also, the, the, all of the accomplished uh, worldly people there, you know, giving freely of their time and schooling. And uh, as I mentioned before, one of the archaeological digs that found some of the ancient uh, ruins there uh, was actually an internee. And that was in 1945. So he freely kind of chose to stay on to continue to live as a part of this uh, artist's commune, as it were. But then there was some, um, uh, the, the most famous guy contemporarily at the time who was interned there was um, an artist by the name of Kurt Schwitters, who was known as this, you know, fabulous painter and raconteur. And he, some believe he invented performance art while on the island. That, that's been attributed to him. But at the same time, there's been accounts from those, I think it was his son who was living with him as an internee, who said, well, you know, as as happy and friendly as he appeared to everybody, he was actually devastated by internment. Psychologically, he found he really struggled with it, having, uh, uh, you know, been, been affected, I guess, by the, the rise of Nazism in Germany and then to be in, interned by the place that he hoped would save him. Uh, it, it was very psychologically damaging, I guess, in, in maybe more private circumstances for a lot of the internees. So, uh, yeah, a, a really significant time for the island. And and easily probably... There's also a... Um, go on, Luke. Sorry to cut no, 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 go on, Luke. There's also a, uh, an interesting, an interesting uh, element to the camps during World War II is that uh, the only all-female internment camp in Europe during the Second World War was actually on the Isle of Man too. It's called the Isle of uh, Man. Was, Sorry. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, there was a camp of about three and a half thousand women and children uh, internees in uh, Ru- Russian or Russian. I'm not sure how you pronounce it on the island um, in the south of the mm, island. Russian. And seemingly this was, you know, as as you mentioned, Mark, like the uh, the camps at the time were. It, I mean, when compared to internment camps, both from the First World War and other internment camps from World War Two. Like we're we're relatively you know safe havens for people, yeah. uh, and this this camp was no exception. Apparently, like there were uh, I read an article saying, of course, people were very you know psychologically affected by being interned, and you know obviously were uh, separated from their lives and their families and all this sort of thing. But um, there were a lot of sort of quite positive reports as well of people kind of saying they were treated very well and that they they actually quite enjoyed their time there and that they, they didn't feel like they were badly treated or anything like that. So it's it's kind of an... That's just kind of another interesting tidbit from the, from the internee... One more internee I'd, I'd like to talk yeah, about. Uh, and he, he is what I would regard as kind of a low-level superhero. Uh, he's a guy by the name of uh, Klaus Adolf Moser. Uh, he was the son of uh, the owner of a bank in Germany, which was liquidated by the Nazis in 1937. They fled to, to the UK... Uh, and he went to school there for a couple of years and then was interned. And while he was interned, he dedicated himself, a very, very young man, to, uh, um, I guess, yeah, he would have been very, very young, to studying the people who were interned. So he, he created uh, uh, statistics and so on to describe the population. Uh, but then after that, his newfound love of statistics, he went to the London School of Economics and then just to go through this list of achievements, my God. Um, 
so he was a member of the governing body of the Royal Academy of Music, director of the Central Statistical Office, uh, BBC Music Advisory Committee, uh, fellow of Newfield College, Oxford, chairman of the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden for like 13 years, uh, director of a bank, uh, president of the Royal Statistical Society, warden of Wadham College, Oxford, chairman of the Economics Economist uh, Intelligence Unit, chancellor of Keele University. It's just, it's, it's bewildering the things that this guy achieves. And people... In one lifetime. In one lifetime. That's... And it partly came, you could, you could potentially trace it to the experience of having, not necessarily of having been interned, but of how the internment went, where the best and the brightest of a lot of Europe, having fled from, from the Germans, uh, were all brought together in this one tiny place for a short period of time that actually a lot of, a lot of amazing things came from that. Yeah, there was a there was even a, a newspaper that was uh, set up. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think you mentioned it, Mark. It was. I, I just thought it was an interesting uh, interesting fact. Again, it's just very plainly called the camp. Yeah. Uh, and that was the newspaper that they set up that sort of was written by internees and circulated among them uh, for the duration that they were there. So yeah, a, a huge collection of, as you say, like intellectuals and artists and musicians that m- must have been a really kind of fascinating place to have spent some time. Just very briefly, the, um, we won't have time to talk about him in, in any detail, but while all these guys were on the Isle of Man, th- there was a Manx man fighting in Europe called Robert Henry Kane, and his career is worth reading about, but basically he won a Victoria Cross for insane bravery, where he basically would fight tanks hand-to-hand. Good Lord. Uh, and would, wouldn't leave the battlefield until he dismantled as many t- tanks as he could. And he's like, no, don't give me stitches. I need to fight more. So he sounds like one of those kind of good old fashioned uh, war heroes who was a, a Manx man and, and they're quite proud of him. Cool. Brilliant. Okay, I think we'll take a quick break there. So that was some traditional Manx music. Joe, tell us about some more music that came from the islands. Um, Manx music is kind of hard to track down because literacy wasn't big among the Manx-speaking population until the religious reformation and the coming of Protestantism and stuff. So finding old ballads and old love songs and old mythological songs is actually quite hard. There's a couple of books were collected in the 1800s of Manx ballads, but... um, one of them in particular was very critical of the ballads that he had painstakingly collected. And the collector said, with regards to the poetical merit of these compositions, I can only say that even in the original Manx, it is for the most part of a very low order. Um, because it was written by mostly illiterate men. Uh, so that that's what the people collecting it passionately think. But um, I, I had a look at some of the songs. They're okay. My Manx is, isn't great, but if you read it aloud, it sounds kind of like Irish and you can figure out what it means. Um, if you speak Irish, of course. Uh, but there are, as I say, a couple of collections of ballads, but more importantly, there's collections of um, carols. 
So when Methodism came to the island, and a lot of people converted to Methodism, um, they they developed lots of religious music in the Manx language and also in English, and it was very popular on Efelveiri, um, which is what they call Christmas Eve, kind of um, Mary's festival. Uh, they would have a, a, a singing session after the service where everyone would sing a carol each until they'd sung all the carols that they could remember. And then they would go home after singing the, the goodnight song, possibly taking a drink in a local pub on the way home. So this was the Manx musical tradition. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a tradition of, of harp playing, but there is some fiddle playing. And in the modern era, you end up with kind of some Celtic rock and things like the Bee Gees coming out of, out of the Isle of Man as well. But just from my point of view, having read about this music and having an interest in, in the language stuff, um, I was really taken by how, how similar to Irish Manx is and how mutually intelligible they are if people speak slowly to each other. And there are lots of radio programmes produced by, in Ireland of people talking with Manx speakers. And in fact, the Irish Prime Minister, the Taoiseach Eamon de Valera in the 60s, went to the Isle of Man and was horrified that no one was recording these Manx speakers before the last generation died out. So he sent over recording vans to, of folklorists to kind of capture the last generation of, of Manx and yeah. the last generation of their songs. The last speaker of Manx, a native speaker of Manx, Ned Madrill, died in 1974. And so the language essentially was, was extinct until a revival movement in more recent times brought it back. And I've heard some people say that it required those old people to die before they brought it back because they had an attitude of, it's no good, let's not pass it on to our children. So when their children grew up without it and only recordings and books to work off, they started reviving the language and have started schooling children um, through Manx now. And it's become part of the national um, national heritage. Yeah, I believe um, I read that there was a school, uh, I just opened a thing at primary school, only in the last four or five years, that's sort of Manx only, like Manx speaking school. Yeah, and so on, uh, and Skelgelega, I think it's called. Mm. Okay. And it's it's following the model of Irish and Scottish Gaelic medium schools, where they teach children yeah. through through Manx, and then they'll become native speakers, essentially. And Mark, you mentioned uh, motorsport earlier. Do you want to sort of illuminate uh, how that came to oh. be, like the how the island came to be famous for yeah, motorsport? Yeah, God, I really do. Like, uh, I, I'm I'm not a motorsport guy at all. It's it's a lot of kind of uh, angry sounding bee noises and uh, watching cars do like the same motion and again and again. It's nothing that like immediately attracts me. But again, I, I mentioned that like it, it's one of the most famous things about the Isle of Man, and it's certainly well, the first thing anyone tells you. And any Manx person tells you is, oh, it's CT. Yeah, 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 exactly. And if you just start, you know, Googling it, that's what it's what, what it'll come up. But, um, oh, my God, it's nuts. It's it's so <laughs> terrifying. Like, I was watching it, just watching videos of it on YouTube last night. Good God, it is. It, sh- it should be, by all intents and purposes, outlawed. It is. And, and the, the reason it's on the Isle of Man is because it was. Outlawed. Well, lots of the Isle of Man doesn't have speed limits. That's one part yeah. of the reason. But, okay, so there was a little bit of motorsports, like, I think, 1904 from then on. Uh, but it was really 1907 when the TT, as it is now known, it means, uh, I think it's, uh, like, tourist 
time trial or something like that. Tourist, tourist trophy. trophy. Tourist trophy. But it's also a time trial in terms of format. So it's how fast can you go around the track. And the track is this uh, particular uh, route around uh, central part of the island. It's it's known. It's got a few different names, but it's kind of the the mountain route or the mountain course. It's uh, 37.7 miles long. And the uh, record for getting around it on a motorbike is 17 minutes and three seconds set in 2015, which to give you to, to, do, wow. to, do, to do the maths on that for you guys, that's an average speed, average of 132 miles per hour on a mountain course on a mountain course. Uh, that doesn't sound that's good. it. It's the Snaffle uh, mountain course and Snaffle, I guess, is the highest the highest peak in the mountain. Now, uh, there, there's a f- there's two different races. There's a TT and I think there's a Manx Grand Prix as well. But they're both uh, motorbike uh, uh, races around around the island. And and they're races on public roads. Yeah. Or r- races on roads that are, are normal roads, not special. No, tracks. just just normal roads going through little villages, going past people's houses, and like you know maybe the Tour de France, just can people sitting there on the side. But unlike the Tour de France, if one of these things hits you, it will kill you. It is really, really terrifying. I was watching I was watching a little YouTube video of some tourist there with his dad. And the dad seemed like, you know, sweet older gentleman, maybe like 70 or so. And he's there kind of fumbling around with an old style camera, putting the film in and kind of... Then suddenly there's this like torrent of hornets noises coming in. And his face just takes on this rictus grin of delight as, as these like multicolored human red mechanical bullets just start shooting past and and he starts saying things like oh it's out of order oh it's, it's not on just like in a semi panic as to what's happening and that's the only sensible reaction to have okay now all of that on one side also it is enormously dangerous it is so 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 dangerous and there's lots of you know videos of, of accidents and crashes and things like that on, on YouTube and also lots of you know mi- uh, near misses and a, a bike hopping over a hill and then just having a tiny little wobble in slow motion, which is petrifying. But m- several people a year on average die in this race or uh, between the two races, mixing together all the time trials, all of the different uh, practice runs and things like that. And on Mad Sunday, which is a, a, a day between the two things where there's no rules. Yeah, well, it, it's, a, it's a different format, but it, it, it makes yeah. things even more terrifying. Um, I, I think maybe you already know the number, Joe. We were chatting about this last night. I, I, I read the total number and you told me not to look into it anymore because I'd be sad. Well, God almighty. So this race has been going since 1907. So that's, that's the starting point. Since, since okay. 1907, there have been 248 fatalities in this race. That, that seems like it's a, a lot. It's a lot of a lot. And you, you, there's a whole, a whole list on Wikipedia of all the different uh, ways that it happened and so on, the different types of race they were in. Um, and this number, it makes you assume that, well, sure, you know, not in the 1930s, I'm sure, when there was fewer rules on this. But no, no. This, if, well, it's worth remembering in, in during World War One and World War Two, the race didn't yeah, run. So this it's is not even a f- less than a hundred races. It's not even yeah. It's I was I was trying to do the math in my head there. So you got almost a hundred years of races. Two hundred forty-eight people killed. That's you know two point five people almost per year. 
every Pretty year. Much. Yeah, and in my head, like you're saying, you're thinking, oh, back in the past, you had 20 people die in one of them, and that no. kind of... No, no. In, in, I think, okay. between 2014 and 2015, together, it was about eight people died. Dear yes. Lord. And I... I suppose because motorbikes have gotten faster and faster as time has gone on, so the race has probably gotten here any more dangerous. I mean, in 1907, uh, know, yeah, I guess you're probably not going that fast. Um, but also, uh, I would say that it's enormously popular. People go for the whole week, and it's uh, it's you know it's a massive party. Um, I, th- probably the, one of the worst ones I saw: two people died on their parade slash victory lap. Oh. And there were 17 uh, Manx fatalities over the years. And that, that includes even some spectators, uh, as I kind of alluded to earlier. So the TT is, I mean, so terrifying to, to watch and to look at. And I'm sure it's an amazing experience to, to ride in and so on. There was actually a documentary only a couple of years ago about the TT uh, I think called Close to the Edge or something like that, and it's uh, uh, it features Guy Martin, who's a famous uh, famous uh, motorcyclist, attempting to to win the TT, and he's gone on to be like a big personality in the UK, and he attempts all these you know very dangerous feats. But uh, that's kind of I guess uh, repopularized it in the 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 public zeitgeist. So it's 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 as popular now as it ever was. And it's as dangerous now as it ever was. But definitely, I would recommend to just look it up on YouTube because it is, it is bewilderingly scary. It is, it's amazing. It really is. And while we're on motorsports, we should probably mention the famous Manx Formula One driver. Well, I, uh, I looked into it and I don't think he's actually Manx. He just lived there for a while. But anyway. Uh, for, for 15 years. Or yeah, something, yeah, yeah. Uh, Nigel Mansell is his name. I think he largely lived in, in the Isle of Man after he retired. He was act. Yeah, because it's it's mecca for motorsports yeah. people. Presumably, yeah, yeah. it's part of the draw. And he uh, he functioned there, as far as I can tell, as a special constable, which means like volunteer policeman with all of the the powers of policeman, but none of the pay. So he's essentially like a public servant in the Isle of Man for quite a while. He 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 was uh, I think the first uh, UK world formula one champion in quite a long time i think he won around 1990 or thereabouts uh and yeah he's i knew him straight off you guys didn't seem to to know who this guy was yeah well i, I don't really follow motorsports yeah. but he, he won the u.s indy car in 93 and the australian grand prix in 94 i think he has records for kind of holding various trophies together and being most first person to do a lot, a lot yeah, of things at the same time so he's a Big star in a world that we are shamefully ignorant A genuine of. big deal. Yeah. Um, uh, another one of those people who go, He's, he, he lived, oh, he lived there too. Oh, really? Huh. Pilates, Mansell. Uh, another one just to mention. The Bee Gees. Yeah, the Bee Gees. Uh, another one just to mention is Mark Cavendish, uh, who has won many world championships as a cyclist, not motorbikes this time just normal normal road bikes normal slow bikes they call them yeah <laughs> yeah um but he's a he's an mbe master of the british empire which is an honorific bestowed by the queen uh he's won a world gold medals and world championships in copenhagen los angeles manchester london uh commonwealth games in melbourne uh he's won uh 15 stages in the giro d'italia 
and 26 stages in the Tour de France. So he's an enormously successful and prolific uh, cyclist. I think he's, his uh, speciality is sprinting. Uh, and again, I, I don't have it in front of me, but the, um, uh, the cyclist uh, record, time record for getting around the TT course is also something uh, really, really amazing. It's something like 40 minutes or something like that or, or much even smaller. It's really, really uh, uh, fantastic. There, there's a real uh, uh, dangerous streak, I guess, to, to, to the Manx yeah, people. Yeah, you can say they're, that again. Really into it. I, I asked a Manx uh, or a friend with Manx family uh, for some tidbits of info about the Isle of Man. She told me about a ferry bridge uh, where you're obliged to salute the fairies and say hello to the fairies as you drive over the bridge. Apparently around the TT, the place is inundated with big hairy biker guys and leather jackets leaving trinkets at the ferry bridge as a kind of a... Please don't kill me. You know, P- superstitious... Pagan homage. Um, yeah. Cool. Uh, and there's also a road near the airport that goes through a river, which I quite like. They've built a pedestrian bridge over the river, but the road, they're like, ah, just go through. And watch out for the ducks. It's a little... Watch the duck sign, which is cute. And if you're not going to have speed limits, why not let rivers flow across your roads? Yeah, 248 people dead. The one thing I think that we, yeah, (laughs) the one thing I think that we haven't covered yet is um, the tax haven status that it enjoys today. Mm. Um, Do whether you guys have anything on that or Uh, no? I do actually have something on it. Uh, Just to say, uh, this is a story I I came across years ago, and I, I just filed it away in my head at the time and I looked into it again uh, as we were going to be recording this and it was to do with Iran trying to sidestep international sanctions so Mm. this isn't quite a tax haven issue so much as it is again as we've seen with a lot of very very small countries the most marketable thing about them is that they are technically a country now the Isle of Man you know is obviously subservient in certain regards to the UK but um but it isn't part of the UK, part of the UK and it isn't part of the European exactly. Union. Exactly. So they're one of the areas which they seem to have independence for administering and setting rules on is shipping registries. So Iran, uh, which up until very recently and even even today in certain regards, has many sanctions against it by the US and the EU and, and similar groupings uh, for uh, their attempts to potentially propagate a, a nuclear weapon. Uh, at least that's what they've been accused of. But uh, amongst these sanctions, many nations weren't allowed to sell them weaponry, arms, ammunition, things like that. And one of the ways they tried to get around this was by uh, buying a ship and registering it in the Isle of Man and trying to use that as a workaround to importing uh, arms into Iran. Now, apparently this was kind of a, a widely known secret to the point that the boat was raided by Israeli commandos as it was heading towards Iran, filled with uh, filled with weapons, and it was only then that the whole uh, the whole thing came to light. Going to the Isle of Man, uh, and the representatives there who were uh, named uh, on the board of directors uh, of this this company that was set up, this shell company, they they were you know pretty much none the wiser that they were implicated in Iranian weapon smuggling. But uh, they essentially get a local person to be a, on the board of directors. Again, I'm doing finger quotes. Uh, 
and they may not really have any involvement with, with the organization. And this is how Iran tried to get around international sanctions using the Isle of Man as a sort of, uh, not tax haven, but more sort of administration haven. A little little, mm. little bit of uh, lack of oversight they were trying to exploit. So, yeah, as a lot of small countries just find their niche in allowing people to slip around the rules. And who are we to judge? I, I mean, it's... I mean, other countries can restrict revenue. You can't lie about that. Yeah, it's revenue. And you don't have massive industries. You don't have massive um, natural resources. So I can understand. Our our country does Uh, it with uh, super low corporation tax rates. Exactly. And it's up to the countries that the companies come from. (laughs) It's up to the countries that companies come from to stop them doing their tax abroad if they feel strongly about it. Uh, I'm I'm not going to... I'm not going to shame the Isle of Man for taking... Shame on you! There's plenty of other things to be... I mean, this is a country that has cats with no tails. I think... I think being a tax haven is the least of their problems. That is yet another thing that we didn't manage to mention. But Uh, I think we should probably wrap it up there. Yes, we we, we have talked about this fascinating little thing over too long. Way over time. All right. So that is the Isle of Man. Uh, Mark, do you want to tell people where they can find more about you on the internet? Absolutely. Uh, I have a blog uh, called The Toner of Leak. It's on WordPress. Just Google Toner of Leak. And you can find me on Twitter at at MarkBoyle86. And Joe? I now uh, have a a blog on timetoburn.com where burn is spelled B-Y-O-R-N-E like my surname. You can find my website at LukeJKelly.com and on Twitter at at TheLukeJKelly. You can get in contact with us at 80daypodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at 80daypodcast and Facebook. Uh, you can also really, really help us out by rating us on iTunes and leaving us a positive review. That would be fantastic for our visibility. Uh, that is all from us. We will see you guys next time. Goodbye. Just, just a Google, a Google image for later. I want to find Barry Gibb wearing a Viking helmet. That, that's, that's just a personal ambition. <laughs> <laughs>